Yeah. Okay, so here goes. Hi, my name is Mark Yerku, and I have the privilege of being interviewed by Trace Burroughs not that long ago for the Westport Library podcast called Oh Brother, Not Another Podcast. So I asked if anyone had recorded him for the series. Morning, Trace. Hi, Mark. Good morning. I'm speaking with Trace Burroughs on this beautiful morning in May 2020. The world is upside down, so I decided to flip it over one more time. Usually Trace and his brother do the interviewing, but this time I thought it's time someone interviewed him. So here goes. You have a long list of accomplishments, so many in so many areas. Most people would be glad to have accomplished just one or perhaps two things on your list. Let's put that in context. I know you to be a visual artist, but that's only one dimension. Tell me more. Um, well, I've dabbled in a lot of entertainment type things. Uh, I, I was an animator and had some character animation, so cartoon type like for series presentation. So um, I had stuff on uh, Showtime and, uh, and in film. My, I had cl my clients were um, Howard Stern, Margaret Cho, and I had one uh, and a couple of others, Rita Rudner and the Yankees. And, um, and I had a, a show developed on HBO. It never came to fruition, but they developed it for a while. Wow. That's, that's a lot for anybody. It's uh I, but I, 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 when we were talking last, you told me you were in the Guinness World Book of Records. Tell, tell me what, why? I, had something to do with Stern you just mentioned. Yeah, so I, I when I was uh, 13, I, when the Beatles came out, and I, I said, I got to, you know, be a musician. I took uh, first guitar lessons that didn't work out, and then drumming lessons. And, you know, my, I had a band right away in high school, junior high, and uh, we did, Rolling Stone type songs and it was like Charlie Watts just keeping the beat. But my brother Miggs went to um, England and saw the who and came back with these stories of Keith Moon drumming all over the place like a crazy man and all this. It really like lit up my head. I said, I've, I have to be like that. I have to be the world's craziest, most outrageous drummer, really bombastic, you know, with the titles and everything. And so I thought um, breaking a Guinness book record would help promote that, uh, that image. So I, at 13? You were 13 at the oh, time? Oh, oh, I'm skipping ahead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I skipped many years. So at 13, I was in all these bands. So I didn't do that till I was 23. So you're talking 10 years later, after I had been in bands and did the crazy drumming business. And I said, yeah, I'm not really getting far enough along in the world of rock and roll. So I thought maybe breaking a Guinness Book record would work. And um, I did that in 75. I'm in the 75 book and the 78 book. So... I, some guys broke my records. I said, I have to break it again. I'm going to break it. So no one ever, so I'll have, hold the record for decades. And I drummed 505 hours. And about right. a, a later, a guy broke my record and a guy broke his record. So there's like four guys who broke these, you know, records, you know. Unbelievable. But, but there was something about Stern uh, uh, and your Guinness World Book records. Is, did I get that wrong? Sort of. It's connected because Stern back in 89 on his uh, terrestrial show had um, the most outrageous stunt contest. And if you won, you'd win $25,000. So I was picked as five people to perform their stunts and then they would decide who the winner is and they paid for the materials. So I made hoping to like appeal to Stern's like sex, sexual stuff. I, I 
made the world's largest pair of women's panties, which is oh my god, <laughs> fifty feet wide and thirty-two feet high. Had little frills on the ends and all this, and I draped them on a building in in Manhattan. I didn't win. Yeah, I saw that that film. It was the Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman. No, I <laughs> yeah. But, so but, a woman who, who drilled in her front teeth K Rock and gold in her front teeth. She worked for a dentist, so I have a feeling that it's just like temporary, but it looks supposed to be permanent. She won. That, she that's won. Going a step too far, huh? Yeah. Wow. But let's go back a step for you. When I hear when you were a schoolboy, you were like a. a was it TV or radio personality? Well, tell me more about that. It wasn't really a personality, but I was in like, um, I was on Video Village. It was a game show on CBS. Um, I got on just, I went to see the show for, my mother took me in. She says, what do you want to do? I said, I want to see Video Village, you know, and then I felt, we filled out the cards and then I got, went for back many auditions back and I got on the show and then I was like the biggest winner. I, I won, took, so it was many weeks, it was a couple of months in the, the whole process of getting on the show, winning the prizes. Um, yeah. So, what, what, so where did that go? That just sort of ended one day? It ended and then the producers called up and go, I didn't even have to audition. They said, we have another game show called Make a Face where there's like a cylinder and it's divided in three sections and they go in different directions. And each sec there's fa uh, cartoon faces and you have to pick out the numbers of the sections to make a whole face while these things are spinning around. And um, so I was horrible at this. And um, my, uh, there was a girl who was, I was competing against right there. And at the end of the show, the host goes, um, this is our last show and we're going off the air. So we're going to give the grand prize to both, contestants so then again i won all this other stuff like you know ping pong table and encyclopedias and money and blah blah all this stuff <laughs> and then it was a third show they wanted to try me out for again i didn't have to audition this that this i did have to audition the third show called yours for a song you had to like sing a part of a song and they give you a couple of words and i was so bad at it they gave me so many chances and and so i never got on that show and that was kind of the end of my game show career until I went to California when I was 28 and I thought I'd try it again. Maybe I'll get it. Maybe I have a knack for this. So I did get on another game show called Crosswits and my celebrity um, who worked with me on my, you know, I worked with was um, Carolyn Jones from the Adams television show, the Adams family. And again, I was terrible. <laughs> I even saw the answers in advance because they were hidden in the scenery and I saw it, but I was so, my adrenaline was so rushing that I couldn't remember what I saw I lost. I won a. I won a bag of like nail polish and ridiculous. <laughs> I can use. So that was basically the end of that. So that was in your twenties. Well, when we skipped over the teen years, so let's let's go back to to the teens. So you were game show host until what the age of contestant. Not, yeah, till the age of you know between ten. I think that whole thing happened within two years. So it was like between ten and twelve years old. Okay. So all right. So. What, how did you follow up that act after, at 13? What, what happened then? Well, around the same period of time, um, I was painting, like, my parents would go out and just keep myself busy. I just decided to, like, drip paint on, you know, little inserts of Nabisco shredded wheat. Those had a little cardboard. So I use that as my canvas, these tiny things. And then my parents come home and they, my dad looks at it, who, who is an artist and he got all excited about it and said, Oh, that's like Jackson Pollock. You know, you, you know, you could sell these. So we started framing them and I started having shows around Fairfield County and I ended up selling like 
300 of these paintings. Oh my God. So, so wait, this is like when you were like 13 years old? That was between the ages of like 10 and 13 or 14. So you were a prolific gallery artist at the age of 13, 14, 15 years old. Yeah. I just can't get over that. Most artists spend their lives trying to get into a gallery. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, okay, so then at some point, and I'm pick, putting the dots together, but, uh, so at some point you, you kind of switched your interest into music, right? At, that, at the teenager? Right, like so at, at the age of 13 with the Beatles and all that. So I got in the bands and I was a drummer. Um, and I kind of, and I even was, that didn't work out like getting in a famous band and the Guinness Book Records never got me into, though some bands saw me like Kiss and some other, and Sid Bernstein who promoted the Beatles, but it never worked into like a, getting in a cool act, you know. So um, I thought I'd be an executive. I worked at Warner Brother Records. That didn't pan out. I worked in the warehouse there. And then I didn't do music for quite a while until like about, um, 15 years ago, I started to get back in the drumming and playing at open mics. And then uh, after I got divorced, in a weird circumstance, I decided to take singing lessons. And so now I, I was a singer and I'm, I've been singing for the last eight years around Fairfield County. And then I started writing music in the last four years. So that's kind of where I am now. Sometimes wow. I have musicians to play the songs or I learn myself basics bass and rhythm guitar to to do it all right well i'm i'm not going to ask you to sing the rest of this interview but <laughs> no. because i got too many questions to ask you because i was i'm trying to keep you on track with trying to understand where, you, where you've been and where you're going but uh, so you're a teenager you you've born and raised in in westport right that's right yeah i lived there for 30. So you went to school here? That's right. I went through the whole schools up to Staples, all the way through Staples. Wow. Which which schools did you go to here in Westport? Saugatuck, which is now a senior center or something on Bridge Street. Then I went to Bedford, the old Bedford, not where it is now on North Avenue, but it's it's down where Saugatuck, they moved Saugatuck School, so it's on Riverside Avenue. That's where Bedford Junior High was. And then I went to Staples, where it's in the same space on North Avenue. So what was Staples like back then? That must have been, what, 40 years ago, more? Yeah. Um, Staples was, a, you know, it was, a, it was a, like a campus. It was very cool. I loved it, the way they laid it out because it was like seven or nine buildings, and you had to walk between buildings to go to different classes. So you got to go outside in the fresh air, you know, and walk under canopies. So it was, it was cool. I, I liked it. They had a nice auditorium for bands, you know. All right, well, I'm trying to put the pieces together. So, all right, we got you through grade school, high school, and everything you did then. And then in your early um, early 20s, you, you started getting back to music and, and, uh, and some art. And am I getting this right? Yeah. Um, there was a gap. Before I got in, back into the art again, which was another, like, I guess, six years ago, um, and music, um, back when my – wife was pregnant back in 89 I dabbled in acting a little bit and then I didn't get any parts but I I did get a job as um, a voiceover announcer on Nickelodeon so I did that for a year where I I introduced the kids on total panic and and would say you know who the winner and you just won this fantastic you know uh, bicycle and all this stuff and they let me make up voices and this kind of thing but I, I was trying to get into um, 
comedy writing. I thought that would help my acting career that work together, you know, like synergy kind of a thing. So I wrote up, made a resume. I had like monologue, screenplay, sitcom, and it took a long time to get these samples together. And then I sent it out. And the only jobs at that point that I got was Nickelodeon, also a, a, a puppet show on Fox called DJ the Cat. So I wrote for many shows on Nickelodeon, which worked its way into being the voiceover announcer on one of the shows. And then during this time, uh, I wrote screenplays, hoping to sell one. I wrote about 11 or 12 with a friend of mine, Ian McNamee. Um, this is like from 90 to 95. Um, and then I ended up, since no one bought, I, I had an agent and a manager and all that, but I couldn't sell anything in Hollywood. So I decided um, I'll write a script that I can produce. That's sort of, you know, that I would not a whole lot of locations, all this kind of keep it low budget. So I produced two movies, feature movies, one called eight behind the wheel, which are eight people driving in their cars and the kind of private thoughts you have while you're driving and they're all in your well, well, at the end. Well, let me, let me ask a question. So you were, you were, you scripted these movies, you directed them and you shot them. Right. I mean, I had help to shoot. Like I had, um, for the first, uh, eight behind the wheel, Halle Piccarello, uh, who, um, West Porter, she helped me um, shoot. She was studying film. And so she helped me shoot it. And, um, and I hired actors, had auditions. I wrote the script a lot, but the, the script, yeah, I wrote the script. So, um, and I bought camera uh, rigs that you could put on a car like they have so you can shoot from, because it all took place in cars, eight behind the wheel. So I had eight people in cars driving locations, but I had like, you know, on the hood, I had, had to have angles because all I had to work with was inside of a car. So I had angles up, sideways, this way, that way. And I had these lights that were about a foot wide LED lights and I put gels over them. So like it would look like you're going to the city or like there's, you know, a red light, green light. So like give it ambiance, like, you know, different tones of light. I just like very low budget, like you couldn't see it, it was out of view and it would shine in their face and be like blue or, or whatever. So, so, but, but this is like the pre-digital. So this was like, you actually filmed with film, right? That's right. I shot with a Sony, um, something fit the initials of 150, which they had at that time with Sigourney Weaver did a feature movie using the same camera. And I went, if they can do it with a feature, I forget the name of the movie, it looked really good. I, I can, why can't I do it? Buy these cameras online, about two of them. Um, and I did a lot of studying, you know, like lenses and, the whole deal, how to, how to make it look good. And then I went forth and um, shot the movie. Uh, the, the, before that, I did a movie using, I said, what's the cheapest way I can make a movie? And I said, I use other people's clips. So I found a site called Something Weird Video where they had a lot of old clips from the late 60s of Grindhouse and very campy kind of films. And I made a sort of mockumentary with the, the owner of these let me use the clips and I put little insertions of like professors from colleges supposedly who are talking about uh, film, you know, film studies and about the film of that era pre pornography and so, so try to make it humorous. So that was the first movie. And then after that, I said, you know, how else can I make a low budget movie? And I thought inside of people's cars. And then I. I'm just curious to, to put this in context because this was before movies were digital but you, I hear you say that you bought equipment online, so it must have been before this transition into all the digital world really came. 
Yeah, it was tape. It was tape, mini cassette tapes. I had to have a digit. I could digitize it. Like, so I have the equipment to get the tape connected to my computer and digitize it. So now I have a, a QuickTime file and then I could edit it in Final Cut Pro and After Effects. So, so in, in, in that world still, making a movie was a, a big traumatic experience and an expensive one. How did you fund this thing? It, you know, I funded it. The, the, each movie, those two movies, um, I, maybe they cost around $3,000. So, you know, I paid for it myself. I tried, you know, I paid actors. Everybody, I paid $150 for the day, and I paid locations. People let me use their houses or whatever to shoot stuff. I said $150 for a day. So based on that, that's where, you know, the use of the $3,000. Wow. Um Gee, so those those movies are in the can, as they say. Available so, <laughs> somewhere? Yeah, they're on Amazon. Um, I believe one of them, Eight Behind the Wheel, is Grindhouse, Bad, Cheap, and Sexy. Um, I think they rejected it because they said it was too uh, R-rated, or you know, they didn't <laughs> they didn't want it on their service. Um, originally, it was called. I, I'm trying to think of a real provocative name, so I called it "Endless Orgy for the Goddess of Perversion," <laughs> which I took from um, one of these trailers, which were so bombastic with the, you know, and basically just top, you know, nudity. It wasn't like full nudity, but back then, in the late '60s, that was a big deal, and the, it was just so. I took the phrase from one of the things that was so bombastic that it really hurt the movie because. People saw that and they thought there was triple X porn. And one time an 18 year old girl who was auditioning for the other movie, um, her parents Googled me and they saw that I had done this movie, Endless Orgy for the Goddess of Perversion. And they said, she's <laughs> working with you. They thought I was like a real perv. And I tried to explain that. I also worked for Nickelodeon though. I worked for kids shows, but they wouldn't have anything to do with me, you know? So, so uh, forgive me, but I, I I'm, I'm, compulsive about trying to give a give a timeline here so you were doing these movies for a few decades because you're talking about the 60s and now you're talking about buying stuff online so that had to traverse what the 60s 70s 80s 90s right no the, the movies the clips i used for that one movie the grindhouse movie was from the 60s but i didn't do the, the films all took were all created between like 2005 and 2008 so in that three-year period three movies one was just a compilation of all my animation. Okay, okay so I got to ask, because you were doing music as well. So did you do the musical score for this? Is yes, I did some of the music. Oh, my gosh. That. I hired outside musicians as well um, from the Norwalk Symphony, like a cello player, violin player. I could do a little bass. I had, like, David Stavitsky an awesome sax, local sax player, and we just jammed out this sort of, like, theme. We actually, part of it's part of our podcast. That and oh brother not another podcast in the beginning that's from that movie so he played crazy sax i said just improvise and do what you go wild you know on the sax and i did sort of this basic bass line and i played bongos like to a very 60s beatnik like you know in the background wow talk about being a one-man band you just did it all all by yourself amazing I, i'm just pulled over i'm sure i'm not the first one to interview you who came before me you're the only person that's ever talked at, at, yeah, you're the first interview I've ever done about all this stuff. Well, I, I'm, I'm baiting you with that question because <laughs> I heard rumor that you were interviewed by David Frost. Yeah. But that was just for my drumming back in like 75, three. 
So he, oh. when I was doing the Guinness book, he had a show. He picked me up. Well, I had a drum in hand. Went left my drum set where I was doing the marathon. Went into a limo. The limo took me to the, the TV studio. They had a little platform with rollers on with a drum set. They put me on there. They rolled me out in the middle of the stage. David, with no preparation, nothing. It just David Frost runs out. So it's the whole thing. Like within ten minutes, he comes out with a microphone and just starts asking me questions. You know. Jeez, thinking about asking you questions, I don't think I could ask you enough questions in this interview. I'm going to have to wait till the book comes out. You're right. We're doing all these different things. Amazing. Um, so, all right. So then, in in the in the millennial millennium years, in the yeah, two thousands. What what have you been doing? That's we're now in the two thousand twenty. So. I'm trying to catch up here. What, what, what's been happening in the last 20 years or so? Well, the last 20 years, I would say I did the movies. Um, I did um, the animation. Many I did present animations and the development, HBO. And so I did a lot of the animations in the, in the last 20 years. I did the, the movies. And then I got back into art again. And then I got back and forth, like in between these things. And I got into music the drumming and get like the singing lessons and start writing. So, so tell, tell me about the animations because I mean, you know, I mean, as a kid, I used to watch animation, not as an adult, but all I remember is like, you know, Fred Flintstone. So what, what kind of stuff were you doing? Well, my thing, I don't know if you remember, or the, uh, whoever's listening to this remembers, Clutch Cargo from the 50s, where he took, car to, he took a film of someone's mouth and put it over, an animated cartoon of people. And that was his, I said, I'm going to bring that back. That's going to be my little niche. And I did that for the first like five animated presentations. It looked very cool. I thought, um, so I filmed people's mouths really close up, put green screen paint, and then I put it on composite it on the animation. Um, so that was my style, but I used, since South Park came out, I was inspired by that. I said, look at, you can have a series, look how basic and amateurish it looks. That was very cool back then. They started all that because before that it was Looney Tunes where, where they do like 24 frames a second, you know, and every little movement, whereas with South Park, it's very, you know, clunky and but it kind of adds to the humor. So I sort of took a lead, took the lead from them. And so you were doing all of this writing for it and animating it all by yourself? Right. Yeah, I thought, I'm kind of bringing, I did graphics, but I didn't bring up. I brought graph, I did some graphics after I gave up the drumming career when I was 30. So I said, what can I combine that's writing, which I've done, which is graphics, and I did voiceovers in Nickelodeon. What would bring all that together? And I, and I thought, animation, I can do all of it. I mean, I did hire some outside people to do voiceovers that I couldn't do, women's voices and some some character stuff but I could because I had done all that I knew and a lot of research and learning about things I figured I could pull this off I mean everything I try is something like I don't know if I can do but I think I can you know and um so I learned After Effects which they find, they do a lot of series now but I was one of the first people to use After Effects to do or may, maybe the first one I don't know to do animation um uh, using that's at Adobe software. Wow, that, that whole world has uh, changed rapidly over the years lately. Uh, it's amazing uh, what goes on. So, all right, so you went from the animation, you then you went in, what, what was the, what was, <laughs> what was your next career? <laughs> My next career. I mean, these things phased out. I'm, plus, I do like trying things, but I really wished 
they would continue, but because of technology or trends, a lot of those things like, you know, died out after six, around six years. Um, I wrote books. I mean, which I, I was trying to build on my Nickelodeon or I tried to build on my, what I did before. So from Nickelodeon, I said, I'm going to write books for tweens stunts you can do at home because they had like family double dare people get slimed and you have all these games well i'm going to think of games you can do at home that's fun kind of like nickelodeon style and i had a, this is in the mid 90s this is before 2000 so i had seven books um one so mostly they were like unusual facts books factoids and there was the messy kids games and then i had one adult humor book called star morphs which my agent was so excited about, oh, this is going to be a big seller and this is going to be major and all that. And I made some nice little advance money. But um, so in the end, um, the book got on Regis and Kathy Lee and uh, the morning show and plus the other two morning shows and the other networks. And I said, oh, this is awesome. Plus I got almost a full page in People Magazine, not an ad, just like they covered it. So, so None of the shows in the early morning, we just, Kathy Lee and the other two, they ne- they showed photos of the book. I mean, they showed the book, they opened it up close to the camera, the audience laughed, but they never said my name, the author, the title, or where to buy the book. Now, I, w- I didn't think I had to put that in my letter when I sent them these books. Like, don't forget to mention my name or where you can buy it. So none of them had the courtesy or the th- thoughtfulness to mention of all this network exposure, so it, I didn't sell many books based based on all this. Okay, who do I send the the uh, the nasty letter to then? Contemporary books, <laughs> so they're, if they're still around, I don't know. Well, wow, I, uh, I I just I keep talking to you, and you keep telling me things, and I it just leads to more and more questions. I mean, this could go on for hours, but you know, we're 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 reaching a closing to this little podcast that I try to get accomplished here. So I, I got to ask because I know, I know you as a, a visual artist because I know uh, when you and Miggs um, had the show over at the restaurant uh, here in Westport at the, uh, at the, um, so, uh, my goodness, I, the name space, I know there's a chef, but I, I can't think of it. Happy de Soleil. Uh, thank you. Uh, down by the train station. But um and so I saw your your work. Tell tell me about your your visual work that you're doing uh, now. I mean, it's it's clearly very sophisticated in the fact that it's very digital as well as the imagery is kind of merges sort of genres of art. Tell me more. Well, yeah, you know, I've, I've tried different genres. I guess my one that I really love is surreal. I've always liked that. So I'm drawn to that. I also like pop art. So pop art and surreal, there's always, you know, elements of surrealness and a lot of the stuff that I do. Um, so it's really, that's where it's from. Salvador Dali, you know, I, as even as a kid, because my parents had the big coffee table books of, of artists. People are listening to this as, a, as an audio. Can you help them visualize, like, one of the things you, you do as a visual artist? It's really hard to, you know, it's like taking, I take imagery, I find images that are, that I, and I put them all together, I collect them, so I have thousands of images, and and then I look at them and I go, what would be, where do I start, you know, what, usually I like a, a figurative in, like a face or a human body in my art somewhere, and so I start with something like that, and then I distort it with other images, textures, 
Um, I don't know where I'm going. It's all a big experiment. Sometimes I go back to it and I take out images. I color, you know, make them different colors until I feel I've, you know, after a couple of weeks, after looking at saying, this is it, I'm done. I like this. You know, some of them I abandon and go, this sucks. <laughs> you know, so. So, so you truly just explore all of these images and then uh, sort of, uh, let's call it composite or assemble them. Is that how that? Yeah, both composite and assemble them. And I guess my subconscious, you know, is working, you know, I just catching the eye, I go, oh, that might look good on that. And sometimes I do that and go, no, that doesn't look good. So I have to keep on doing it. Yeah, well, to that end, you know, the world right now is in this lockdown over this pandemic. I mean, we can't not talk about this to some degree. Um, I, I like to think of it, the words that come to my mind is, is the great pause. But how does this affect your artwork? I mean, since you're putting together all these images, what does this at all come into play? Or is this completely separate from, in other words, is this pandemic affecting you in any way? I think unconsciously it is. I think it seems weird. I look back art that I've done. It seems like it's affected by how I feel. And I don't do it consciously. Like I feel depressed or isolated. Now I'm going to make something. It looks like this. I just do what I feel I want to put together. And then I, but when I look at it after I've done a few of them, I go, yeah, it really kind of looks like the way I feel right now. So again, I'm working on some surreal art using just a few images. Usually I put tons of images together. This is just like two or three images that are very strange and give you a, sort of a weird feeling. I don't know. Because I think of art as, you know, contemporary art is always of its time. I mean, you can't separate the fact when you're living and when you're doing it. So I was very curious to hear your thoughts on uh, how, how you see this, this pandemic and how do you see the world after this pandemic? Boy, you know, who knows? I mean, it looks kind of dire. I think it's going to take a few years to get past the economic part of this whole thing with, you know, um, how that's going to affect at least trillions of dollars they're giving away and, you know, printing out. And um, and also with the politics, you know, it's also very scary. Um, what's going to happen in November. So, um, yeah, we don't know how this is going to affect what we're going to get. Well, you're, you're talking about, you know, the, the measuring the things we can measure, the economics, you can see uh, politics and, and who gets elected and why. But how do you, what do you see as the greatest effect that this thing has had? Because it, everyone in the world has been affected by this. How do you see that? Well, I think it's going to take years for people not to think three times before they shake someone's hand. You know, <laughs> you know the touching, like people are going to be conscious, like watching people's hands are in a club now. And may, they're going to be look thinking and the whole idea of touching, you know, like rubbing, getting near, near someone that's going to go on for years, I think. It'll eventually wear off if we don't have another virus like this. Um, people need to socialize. And so other than that, I really don't have enough. I don't know how, I, th I think people are going to be kinder and more open to each other in a general sense, but that may die down and we'll get back to the way people, you know, like it's going to be, you know, set back to the way we usually feel, you know, the, the, the people on the planet have 
fundamentally changed by this virus? I don't know, honestly. I mean, we had those big, the virus of the, you know, 1910 or whatever it was. You know, we've had other viruses that were huge. I don't know how that's, has that still affecting us today? What happened in 100 years well, ago? I think the, the difference between the virus of 1918, the, the, the flu pandemic in 1918, and now is, is that the world is completely digitally connected. We, we are connected in a way that it's never happened on this planet before. And we've also had this pandemic that's affected everyone on this planet. Do you see anything in that? Is, does, is, is it affecting how people are going to go forward um, with their lives more than shaking hands? You know, I think it could be an effect because we're all sharing this same thing all over the world. I mean, I just saw some pictures today. The New York Times published of like Amsterdam and Italy and all places people travel like it's totally open. You know, there's nothing. There's ghost towns all around the world. And then look, one of them looks like it was Indonesia. I mean, it's happening everywhere. Uh, it could have an effect with people feeling more connected. I, re I really don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm not a socio sociologist. So I don't know. Well, this is more your personal feelings about this, but we need to end this, I guess, at some point. So I'm going to say our goodbyes and thank you very much for being so candid and Thanks for interviewing me. I, I was, uh, you know, with all the things you've done, it was hard to sort of try to uh, hold in my head some kind of timeline of what's happened in your life because it's, it's, it seems like it's, all happened in a linear fashion in one respect and a completely non-linear fashion in every other. So I'm um, grateful to hear you talk about it and answer my questions um, so politely. Uh, but thank you very much. Uh, I want to thank you and Migs for doing these podcasts for the library. And I hope uh, to hear and see all the wonderful things you're going to continue doing. With that, I'll say so long and have a good day and hope the pandemic makes your world a better place. Okay. Thanks.